Well, as you can even sense today by our, our singing and our celebrating, uh, Resurrection Day, uh, as we, we tend to call it, is it's a glorious day. It's a, it's a sweet day. There is, it's a day of hope. It's a day of, of joy. It is, in one sense, the diamond that God holds up to the world and says, look at my power, look at my glory, look at what I can do. And I think what makes the, the resurrection so amazing and, and have such weight and such power is, is the backdrop on which that diamond is laid. If you go to purchase a diamond, the jeweler will pull out that precious stone and he will, he will typically lay it on a piece of black velvet to help yeah, bring out all of the, the beauty of the diamond so it sparkles. You, you see it with the contrast of the black velvet behind it. This morning we sing and we celebrate about the resurrection of Christ. There's a black velvet that lays behind it all, and it's, it's the pain and the suffering and the sorrows that all of us experience in this life and none of us escape. Where do you go in those times of trouble? Where do you go when hope feels lost, when suffering seems insurmountable? Where, where do you go? This morning I spoke with a friend who he and his wife have, have just endured their third miscarriage in a row. And they just don't understand why. They prayed and they're trusting and God is such peculiar, mysterious providences. Another friend whose marriage has just been wrecked with sin and this is just not the way they envisioned it going. And it hurts so bad. Other friends whose children are breaking their hearts as they wander further and further away from the Lord. Some who just feel that there's just always this mysterious darkness of depression that they just can't shake. It's a cloud that's always there. Others this week speaking of the, the just overwhelming temptations that they just can't seem to fight well. Another dear friend sharing about the anniversary of, a, of the death of a loved one. You just, you never, you never get over. And with permission, I thought I would let you know that I was trading texts with, with Kyle Brown this morning and that his dear wife Erin is is in dire situation. She's suffering greatly this morning. If you don't know who that is, Aaron is one of our members, Kyle and Aaron, young family with children, and she's on hospice with cancer. Where do you go? Where do you go in those days? Well, you go to an empty tomb and you look there and you say, that's not the end. That there's hope because God will not abandon his people to the grave. The grave does not win, suffering does not win, but the Lord Jesus conquers. And that was the hope of David even before the Lord Jesus came. Hear these words from Psalm 16, which will be our text this morning. 
a victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore this morning our big idea try to summarize this text in one phrase it's something like this take refuge in God and he will deliver you into his everlasting joy Take refuge in God, no matter what situation or circumstance you find yourself in this day, and He will deliver you into His everlasting joy. We see the first thing that the psalmist tells us is this is a mictum of David. Now, a mictum, everyone knows what that is, right? Nobody knows what that is. (laughs) If you read commentaries, everybody has all kinds of ideas of what it means, and we don't know. Some say it's a uh, a musical tune, which the Psalms are, by the way, the the hymn book of the people of God. They sing these these tunes, if you will. Some think it may be the tune that you sing it to. Others say that this is a, a word that's related to gold, so it's a valuable psalm. Others say it's a word that's related to being engraved, so it's meaningful and memorable. We don't know, but it's a mictum, so there you go. (laughs) We also know that it's of David. Now, we do know what that means. David is a former shepherd boy who was appointed by God to be the king of Israel. And as we're going to see, this is a psalm written by David about David and his relationship with God, but it's not exclusively about David. It is going to point to one who would arise from David's distant family line, the king of kings, the good shepherd, the even better shepherd. I was going to say gooder shepherd, but that's not it. The better shepherd, a gooder shepherd too, the Lord Jesus. Twice this text, Psalm 16, is going to be quoted in the book of Acts that we've been going through as the proof text for the resurrection. This is the OG resurrection text, Psalm 16. We're going to consider it in four four movements, if you will, four points that act as instructions for us in the midst of our sorrows awaiting a day of of resurrection and finding strength from the day of resurrection that has already occurred. We're going to see in verses 1 1 through 2 that we need to plead for God's protection. We need to plead for God's protection. 
Secondly, verses 3 and 4, we are to delight in God's people. To delight in God's people. Thirdly, verses 5 through 8, that we are to hope in God's portion. We are to hope in God's portion. And finally, verses 9 through 11, we are to trust in God's promises. Trust in God's promises. We take refuge in God and He will deliver us into His everlasting joy. Number one, plead for God's protection. Look again at verses 1 and 2. David cries out, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now this psalm doesn't inform us what David's dilemma is, but it seems dire here. David is facing some sort of threat of death. Maybe Saul is is stalking him again and is trying to kill him. Maybe a a foreign army is is hunting him down. Maybe another personal friend has betrayed him. All of those things happen to David. We don't know exactly which one of those or maybe some other sort of trial, but what we do know is that David is in trouble. And we also know that David's response is prayer. Did you catch that? Psalm 16, a psalm, it's a, it's a prayer. He's talking to God. David prays here. He looks up from his circumstances, whatever they may be, and he looks to God for help in the midst of his hardship. This prayer begins with a plea, preserve me, O God. It's a very interesting word in Hebrew. It means to regard, it means to save, it means to watch over another's safety. And it's most prominently used in two contexts. Of a guard taking watch over a king and of a shepherd taking watch over a sheep. Now who knows that David's both a king and a shepherd? This, this word for him, it's a personal word. He knows about being guarded, right? He, he knows about the Secret Service watching his back. He knows what it means to be a shepherd who watches over a sheep while there's bears and there's, there's lions and tigers. Oh my, all that seeking the sheep. He knows what it means to, to watch over them. That's, that's what he's been about his life. And he knows, he knows that he's got one that watches over him. This is a personal word. Preserve me. Danger is imminent, O Lord. So his prayer is fervent. Which, by the way, just important to to notice here, prayer, prayer is faith in action. So what's what's faith look like? Well, in its most basic form, it's it's crying out to God. It's the, it's the, 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 the hand of the heart reaching up to God and saying, help me clinging to him by by faith. Here David reaches to heaven with his words and says, preserve me, O God. For, which is a really important word, he he tells you why he makes this request to God. For, in you I take refuge. Preserve me for, because in you I take refuge. Notice here, David has already made up his mind about where he's going in his time of trouble. He, he, this, is already, this is already taken care of in his mind. He's not making a deal with God and saying, well, hey, if, if you help me out in this one, I'll follow you. 
How many of you ever done that with the Lord before? Yeah, the rest of you not listening. A lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. David says, no, no, no. I'm taking refuge in you, so please preserve me. He makes a clear declaration here for himself, for all who hear. It's like he puts a sign outside his house and over his door. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David's boast is in the Lord. He knows that the Lord is the sovereign king, the one who has right to rule over. So it's a word used of the Lord Jesus. That's why when you see the Lord Jesus is a claim to deity. Now it's it's important to understand here David's declaration because in the midst of trials, we are tempted to do whatever seems best to us. But but we don't have the right to do that if we are the people of God. Rather, we must trust the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you no matter how this thing goes. You are my Lord. You're my king. You have rights over me. This is why Jesus would say in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's not like when hard times come that we get a pass. We're like, all right, well, I'll be back, Lord. I'm going to go figure this out. (laughs) That's not only dumb, but that's dangerous. You see, David knows that in the midst of trial, the safest place to be is with the Lord. You remember Peter? Remember Peter in the, in the boat when the storm came and they saw the Lord Jesus walking on the water? Do you remember what, what Peter said to the Lord Jesus? He said, Lord, if it's you, call me so I can what? Listen, what you don't do is get out of a boat in the midst of a storm unless the Lord Jesus is out of the boat because Peter knew it was safer to be with the Lord than in a boat in the midst of the storm. David has that same posture here. He says, I have no good apart from you. He knows that God is the source of every good thing that he has and will have. The Apostle James echoes this, every good and perfect gift is coming down from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He never changes. He's always good, even if circumstances would tempt you to doubt that. And David says here, God, if you don't show up, I am doomed. There is no plan B. All chips are on Yahweh. And it serves as a model for us. Listen, in the midst of trial, in the midst of sorrow, you drop to your knees physically, metaphorically, but you come and you plead for God's protection. Preserve me, God. I need you. Trials, pain, and suffering will do one of two things. It will either drive you away from God or it will drive you to God. The first is Satan's desire. The second is the Lord's. David draws near to the Lord and he pleads, preserve me. I got nothing but you. Plead for God's protection. Secondly here, delight in God's people. Delight in God's people. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. 
in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In verses 1 and 2, David says, I love God and I trust God. And here in verses 3 and 4, he says, I love God's people and I align with God's people. The saints here, this is not talking about a team in New Orleans. This is talking about the, the holy ones. The, the set-apart ones. It's what a true believer is. It's a, it's a holy person. Someone who is set apart from sin. They've repented of it. They've turned away from it. And they've turned to God. This is not some sort of snooty self-righteousness here. But this is a, this is a humble person who has recognized that their, their sin leads to death and sorrow, and they have turned to the Lord for forgiveness, and they will, I don't want anything to do with that way anymore. I want the Lord's way. It looks to Him. You know when you meet one of these saints, one of these holy ones. I'm so thankful as I look out that there's so many of you that I could put in this category. As I was thinking last night, the, some of the first people came to mind were Eric and Kate Butterball. I know that they would say, uh-uh. <laughs> but when you're around them, you could tell they've been with Jesus. Now, they, would, they are not perfect, and they would tell you that, which is the pathway to, the, to what it means to be set apart. Pray that God would make you one who spends much time with Jesus. That when other saints get around you, they get refreshed because you have been fellowshipping with Christ. This is not about putting pressure on you to be perfect. There's only one who's perfect. His name was Jesus. But be one who constantly goes back to him. David says, they're the excellent ones. But notice where they are. He says, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. In this psalm, you're going to find five allusions to, to land, to inheritance, to portion. Okay? These are references to the, the promised land you remember that under the Old Covenant, God promised His people a plot of land in which He would establish them. And there, He would supply His presence and His protection and His provision. David says, I'm with the Holy Ones, and together we are under God's care. I want to be where God is, and that's where God's people are. In the midst of his trials, notice here, he doesn't run away from everyone else, which is always, I don't know about for you, it's often the temptation for me, just isolation and get away. Nobody understands. I'm scared or I'm ashamed or whatever it may be or I'm just too tired. Like we want to run away from God's people. David says, no, no, no. In the midst of his trial, I love the Lord and I love y'all, is what he says. In Christ, the, the saints are no longer geographically bound, but now we are bound by the Spirit in one body, in the family, in the church. So, so when we read this here as in the land, we understand that under the new covenant now, the, the, the people of God are not in a place, but they are a people. So this is if David was a new covenant believer and he was here, he would say, as for the saints, in here, in this congregation, together, y'all are the excellent ones. 
Excellent means noble or majestic. There's something distinct about them. Though they may be poor, he says they are rich in God. Though they may be mocked by the world, they are marveled at by the angels. Though they may be outcasts in the culture, they are embraced by Christ. God's glory reflects in them. And there's something about that that gives David life in the midst of his trial. He says, in whom is all my delight. God's people delight in God's people. There's to be a, a brotherly and sisterly affection that we have for fellow saints. Which is why Satan does anything he can to divide and to stir up gossip and slander and, and whatever he can to get us to not trust one another. Satan deals in suspicion so that you won't find this sort of grace from God in one another. So when you struggle to see your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as excellent ones, just remember how kind and patient and merciful God has been with you. Consider the depths that Jesus went to rescue them. It will move you to show them love as well. Verse 4, David says, I don't follow those who don't follow God. Because the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. You see, during distressing days, it can be tempting to think that following God is foolish. You can be tempted to forsake him and to just say, just say, I'm going to just follow the world. Many times in the midst of our suffering, it feels like it would just be easier and suffering could be avoided if we just went with the world's flow. David, David won't do that. David says, I take refuge in God. He's seen that the world's ways, all it does is produce pain. He sees the sorrow of trading God for idols. An idol here is, is anything that you, or, or gods here, depending on your translation, it's, it's, it's anything that you look to for life or for peace or for happiness or for security apart from God. So it might be literally an, an, another god, like Muhammad or might be or Allah or uh, Zeus or whomever, some other god. Or in our context, a more ordinary thing, even the best of things like family or friends or, or fame or fortune, those, those could all be gifts from God, but when we make them our hope and our joy, we can turn them into idols. We are all by nature idolaters who run after other gods. That's my story, just so you know, in case you're visiting here. I'm not the guy who's, who's always had it together. I don't have it together now. Before my life as a, as a Christian, I became a Christian when I was 21, I, was, I loved idols. For me, it was drink and drugs and dating, and, and I, I, my whole life was about seeing how much sin I could enjoy. But it always brought sorrow. Sure, there's joy in the moment of, uh, of sin, but, but then that fades. I used to use others and, and hurt others. And I saw that when I came to Christ, that was one of the first things he did. He showed me 
how I had run against him and tried to find life in everything else, and it just always came back void. And now, to be honest with you, one of the, one of the hard things about being a pastor, it's, there's many great joys, but one of the hard things is having a front row seat to watching people destroy their lives with idols. To see a husband or a wife forsake God and their spouse in adultery. To see many forsake God for, for, for money and power and, and, and perks in a way that, that suffocates their, their soul from, from, from life. Because idols always provide this illusion of happiness, but their pleasures always have an expiration date. The gospel of the world is to, to follow your heart, be true to your, your desires, regardless of whether God's word agrees. And it sounds like freedom. But y'all, it's slavery. It's slavery. David says, I'm not, I'm not running that way. I will not pour out offerings like they do. He says, his worship won't be like those who worship idols. He says, I will not take their names on my lips, meaning he won't call for those gods to help him. In the midst of his suffering, he says, I'm not going to run to these other gods, which again, I think it's helpful for you to do some consideration. What is it that you run to in the midst of your trial? Whatever you run to, that is your God. Where do you go? Drink, drugs, shows, friends, family, nature, whatever it is. Beware that path apart from God is marked by sorrow, David says. David here is making a choice that will be, be tough, but he follows Moses in Hebrews 11, choosing rather to mis be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He says, I'm going to follow God's people. I'm going to be with God's people in the midst of my suffering. I need them. We find refuge in God, but also in one another. Jesus loves them, so we do as well. Because God's people help one another fight temptation to run after other gods. We find help and hope in, in Christ. So I want to say thank you. In the 10 years that I've been here, so many of you have helped me with your prayers and your encouragement to keep looking to Christ, keep looking to him, brothers and sisters. Do not run away from one another in the midst of your trials. Take refuge in God by locking arms with one another. Not getting sucked into all of the things that the world offers and the sorrows that are down that path, but flee to Christ together, reminding one another day by day that we are almost home. So plead for God's protection in the midst of your suffering. Delight in God's people. And thirdly, hope in God's portion. Hope in God's portion. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. These verses again remind us of the, the promised land. 
Do you see it there? Of when God brought Israel out of Egypt into Canaan, how he allocated to each tribe plots of land. The boundaries were measured out by his, as, a, as a generous gift from God to that tribe, the determined by lot and distributed uh, by, by, by line there. But there was one tribe who didn't receive land. Anybody remember who it was? It was Levi. Rather, they were sprinkled throughout the land. And you remember what God said to them? Listen to this, Deuteronomy 10. Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance. David says, listen, y'all, I got land. I'm from the tribe of Judah. But I don't boast in a portion of property. I don't boast in a throne or a kingdom. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. He says, God, you're all that I have. I hope in you. You hold my lot. Now, this is important. You see how David envisions the Lord right here? He envisions the Lord as casting lots for him. That's the roll of dice that they would make decisions by. The scriptures say that God calls the, the dice of the lot to follow, fall as they're supposed to, highlighting that he's sovereign over every choice. But the picture is, D David says, the Lord, he is casting my lot. David rests in the midst of his suffering knowing this, that he always receives exactly what the Lord wants him to have. Remember this truth in the times of danger and trial and suffering. There are no accidents in this universe, only appointments. Even with suffering. Now listen, God does no evil. There are no mistakes in his itinerary for your life. He has a plan even if the path leads through the valley of the shadow of death. David wrote that psalm too, you remember, Psalm 23. David says right here, though, in the midst of his dire situation, he declares, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Listen, dear suffering saint, do not lose heart in your dark days. God is not done the story is not over. You're not in the final chapter. God has a plan for your pain. Look to Christ as the ultimate example of this. Think of Christ, the one who lived a perfect life, who suffered, who was betrayed by best of friends, betrayed for, for a pile of money, who was tortured to death by the very people he came to do good to, the greatest evil in history is that we sinners put to death the one who came to be our savior, crucified him, tortured him to death on a tree, and then he was buried. And that, that was confusing to his followers. They didn't know what was happening. A couple of his disoriented disciples even said in Luke 24, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem us. Hold on, brothers. The story's not over, right? Because three days after Jesus died, he rose to give everlasting life to all who look to him. The story wasn't over. Sometimes in the midst of your suffering, it feels like it's over. I'm never going to get out of this. This is so, it's hopeless. Listen, if God can use the greatest evil in history 
the crucifixion of his son, for the greatest good in history, the salvation of sinners and the glorification of his name, you can trust that he has a plan for your pain. David, in the midst of the valley, says, this is a pleasant place. The lines that you have drawn up for me to walk They are pleasant places. Not because he likes pain. Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes suffering. Why does he say that though? Because the Lord's with him. You see, if you you come to Christ, I want to assure you of something. All of your troubles will not cease. They may actually increase. Jesus will be with you. You'll never be alone. You'll never be alone in your suffering. You'll never have to wonder if there is hope. In the midst of your suffering, Christ goes with you. I am with you, says the Lord. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is why David says, (laughs) I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. God does not leave his his children suffering in the dark, just wondering. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but he tells us everything we need to know. And what we need to know is that he is with us. He has given his word to, to guide and to guard and to give life. He says, in the night also my heart instructs me. As David lays in his bed or maybe even passes out with exhaustion, he knows that God doesn't cease working. He's meditating on on God's promises here. Even while he's sleeping, the living word is is working. Which is a side application. Going to sleep with the scriptures on your brain is better than shows on your brain. There's nothing better for the people of God than to grab a few promises and use them as the pillow for your soul. Meditate on them as you go to sleep and trust his word to continue to work. David pictures himself just laying on the bed, as some of you probably even this week have done, just crying. Another psalm says his, his tears are being caught, though, by, bottle, by, by the Lord, and he puts them in a bottle and remembers every one of them. He clings to promises while he's on the bed, saying, you still instruct me here. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David's security, his hope in the midst of his suffering is that God is his portion. He has promises from the Lord. He has the Lord's presence. When David looked at all that he has, he does not find comfort and security in his power or his prestige, his stock portfolio, his political approval rating, any of that. He's the king, and here he's crying out like a child because he is a child, a child of God. He has found his comfort and his contentment and his security in God. And we can too. Dear friends, in the midst of your suffering, let God be your portion. Hope in him because he is faithful. Which brings us to our fourth and final point. Trust in God's promises. Trust in God's promises. Verse 9, Therefore, My heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He begins here with saying, or he concludes by saying, therefore, in light, in light of all that he has remembered about God, David says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. It's like he's saying, though my world is falling apart, God is holding me together. My heart is glad, not because his circumstances are good, but because God is good in the midst of it. He says, my whole being rejoices, not because he's not hurting, but because God is helping him. He says, my flesh dwells secure, even in the face of death, because he knows that his God will defeat death. This is where David takes us from his day to a day far away, the day of resurrection. As David is, is, is meditating here and, and penning these, these truths here under the inspiration of the Spirit, he knows that even if he dies, death is not the end for him. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol here is the place of the dead, of the grave. And David says, listen, I might die because of what I am facing, but I do not fear death because I believe that death is not the end for the people of God. Death is not a period for the people of God. It is a comma. D David here, he clung to the promise of resurrection. But that, that promise was not going to be secured by anything that David would do, but rather what his long-awaited descendant would do, the Lord Jesus. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, twice this verse is referred to in Acts as Jesus fulfilling it. Listen to the way that, I'll, I'll, we'll just do one of them. Just listen to this from Acts chapter 2. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter's going to say that David has an eye toward the Lord Jesus as he penned his psalm. Verse 25 of Acts 2, for David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes on to interpret, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He says, you can go to David's grave right now, right around the corner. Being therefore a prophet, David was, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, while David is penning Psalm 16, the Spirit is foretelling its hope. That is about Jesus ultimately. 
Because everybody else who has ever been born has died, and they have gone into the grave, and you can visit every grave that there's ever been, and they're still in there because dead people don't come out of graves. But if we're told of one, one who would come and who would defeat death, which is what Christ the Lord did, Yes, he died. Yes, he was buried. But he was raised from the dead. And in so doing, he made that promise our promise. Jesus purchased the promise of resurrection for God's people on the cross, and he assured its certainty through his resurrection. That's what he did through the cross and the empty tomb. He made that promise your promise. David was facing death, but he was not afraid because he knew that one day the Lord would be raised up and that he would be raised up as well. You see, this whole psalm in one way leans us toward looking to Jesus. Because just as as David prayed desperate prayers, so did the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Just as David delighted in God's people, so does the Lord Jesus who loved us. And in Hebrews it says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Can you imagine that? The Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if I was Jesus, I'd be ashamed to be calling me his brother. He'd be like, nah, you know, you, you, ever, have a, you ever have a sibling who you kind of like, this is my brother kind of, you know? <laughs> like, if there's anybody who should do that, it's Jesus with us. He'd be like, ah, it's kind of my family. No, that's not what he does. I am not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters. He loves the saints. They're the excellent ones, he says. Just as David took hope in God's portion, so did the Lord Jesus. You remember Jesus, when he was on the earth, he said, my food is to do what? The will of him who sent me. Jesus had no greater joy than to obey the Father. He trusted him in all things. Not my will, but thy will be done, Jesus would say. And just as David trusted in God's promises, so did Jesus. Jesus knew that when he went into the grave that he would be raised from the dead and that he would return to the Father and be in the eternal joy that they had shared for all of eternity past. Listen to this from Hebrews 12. Speaking of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Jesus was going to the cross, as he he was being beaten and betrayed and mocked and spit upon, what he had on his mind was the glory that was coming. The, the, The joy of being with the Father again, for the Father to be seen in all of his glory and for us to see it too. You remember in John 17, Jesus says, I... I want to share the glory with you that we shared before the foundation of the world, and I want them to see me in my glory. Just the whole reason that God made us. He made us that we would know him, that we would see his glory and enjoy him. Sin steals all of that from us. It steals it, and it just paves a path of sorrow and death. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he died for all the ways that we ran away from him. And then he rose from the dead and he says, come out from that path of death. 
There's nothing but sorrow there. There's nothing but shame there. There's nothing but regret there. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto Christ. He will remember your sins no more. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. He is the one who defeated death. Nobody else does that. He is the only true hope in the midst of suffering. And for Jesus, it was the joy of being with the Father and sharing in glory and us sharing in it as well that drove him to faithful obedience, even in the midst of trial. And then David takes that hope of resurrection and he says in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want you to notice here how David draws upon the, the, the bank account of eternity to fuel his hope in today. David's eye is upwards. In the midst of all of his sufferings and trials, with everything that's calling him to turn away and to run away, and he looks up and he says, in your right hand, in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, and I'm gonna trust you. In spite of all of my circumstances, through death, just like the Lord Jesus did perfectly. That is what helps us in our day. In the midst of trial and in the midst of temptation, what we do is we look, we look to Christ. And we say, you've made known the path of life. He went before us. He's given us his word and his spirit now to guide us along. He's given us the church to lock arms with and to help one another to stay on that path of life, walking in the midst of trial and temptation and sorrow and suffering that marks the whole way home. Both saints, we're almost home. Almost home. And we look up just as David did and says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Someday soon and very soon, those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ will share with Christ in his glory and will be taken into a new land where there's no more sorrow and no more pain or tears are wiped away forevermore, no more temptation. You'll never even want to sin again. A land of joy, a land where pleasure is known forevermore. I wonder if there's a play on the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, the land of pleasure. Eden literally means delight. Sin stole that away. God says, I bought it back, and I have it for you. Come to me. It is worth it. So dear friends who've just endured your third miscarriage, the Lord is with you. He has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. In his hand is pleasure. Trust him. You're almost home. Brokenhearted parents, keep clinging to Christ. He will not forsake you, even in the midst of the valley of sorrow. Kyle and Aaron, as you listen at home, these excellent ones love you. They love you. And so does the Lord Jesus. He is your portion. We've seen it with your faith, and I encourage you to keep clinging. In his right hand, in his right hand is safety. You're almost home. Don't lose heart. Your faith helps us.